Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 102 of Yogaland. I'm so excited to share this interview with you today. It's with T.S. Little, who is just someone I respect so much, and he is wonderful to listen to, wonderful to learn from. T.S. is based in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and he directs a school with his wife, Surya, called Prajna Yoga. You can find out more at prajnayoga.com. And Tias is the author of three books, The Thread of Breath, Meditations on a Dewdrop, and Yoga of the Subtle Body. Tias has a very long relationship with yoga, and I, I asked him about that in the beginning of the interview. His mother started doing yoga first, and so he watched his mother and then took up a Yangar practice and then eventually Ashtanga practice. But he is really his own type of teacher. He's trained in many different modalities. He's a licensed therapist. Uh, He's done in-depth training in cranial sacral. He's influenced by Ida Rolf and Feldenkrais. He's also a meditator um, and a student of Tibetan and Zen Buddhism. And he also has a master's degree in Eastern philosophy. So he's got a lot to say, and he weaves all of these different studies together in his own informative approach to yoga and contemplation. The topic, the focus of today's conversation is on perfectionism. I heard him do a talk on it, and I was just loved his framing of things. And this conversation did not disappoint. So I'm going to stop babbling so that you can get right to the interview and enjoy it. So, T.S., you taught the anatomy component of the teacher training I did with Sarah Powers in 2002. I can't believe it's been that much time. And my memory of that training is that when we were introduced to you, you had a really interesting story of how you came to yoga. And my memory is that your mom did yoga first. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. My mom trained in Iyengar yoga with a woman named Silva Mehta, who was one of Iyengar's senior teachers, and she lived in London. And so um, the year that uh, I was 14, we lived in London, and my mother started in the Iyengar system. And so I used to do, you know, maybe standing poses in the kitchen, you know, under my mother's watch. And I've had that sort of taproot of the um, alignment-based Iyengar work uh, ever since. That's amazing. And then you began to study the Ashtanga system in earnest on your own. How did that happen? You know, given that I was in my 20s and I was um, interested at that time in very kind of physical yoga, I was drawn in to do the Ashtanga Vinyasa and was, you know, in that um, system for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years and survived that. And (laughs) it's you know, just given his rigor, um, they're, you know, fairly extreme poses or movements. They're not due now. But for that time, it was very intense, uh, but very informative. Uh, so, yeah, I, um, but I always had the internal alignment uh, understanding, which I think um, helped secure my, my structure as I did all the Ashtanga practice. Right, because you had you were you had been watching your mom and been exposed to the alignment first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. yeah. Mm-hmm. Were you were you in London when you started Ashtanga yoga? No, I was back here in the in, in the U.S. And I really was uh, inspired by seeing you know the primary series and 
and just how dynamic it was. And for, you know, 20 something, I was game at that time to really push my body. And, and there was really a magical alchemy in that kind of, that kind of practice for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I felt that myself in my 20s. I think it's a great doorway into the practice because, you know, there's a lot of energy you got to work through at that age. You have, you know, you have a lot of physical vitality and you're sort of still figuring yourself out mentally and emotionally. And it's so focusing. It's such a powerful focusing practice. That was before I had more of an understanding of the underpinnings of the yoga practice. So at that point, my experience was primarily physical. You know, since then, I've been able to really being able to really garner a much wider view of the yoga path. So looking back on it, it was fairly narrow with just emphasis on postures and, you know, trying to put my leg behind my head and keep my sacrum intact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not, a, that's not an easy task. <laughs> <laughs> so you have this ability to draw in different styles of yoga, different therapeutic modalities, poetry. So, and you said, you know, you have this wide sort of view of the, of the path, which I love. How did you do that, Tias? I mean, I think finding one's own voice outside of one very narrow system is so incredibly challenging for teachers. Do you feel like it just came naturally to you? Was it gradual work over your lifetime? How, how have you become you as a teacher? My father was a university professor and he taught like comparative religion. Mm. So my, my background is really one of this kind of, you know, curiosity to inquire into, you know, the nature of the, the Dharma. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that fervor towards inquiry really brought me into studying a lot of different aspects of the yoga tradition that is, you know, not only like the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, but and studying Sanskrit, but some of the Taoist teachings and and the Buddhist teachings, of course. And so, in that sense, it it was kind of a long process of of sort of sussing out where I fit in the the lineage, the traditions, and and then from there, I I feel like much of my own voice has been informed by language, I, I really, I feel like how one languages a class, you know, how one describes an experience is really important. And as a writer and to want to be poet, I really have an affinity for language. And, and so as a teacher, that's my, that's my primary tool is being able to describe experience. So I'm always trying to read inspirational writing and, and verse and poetry that's inspirational. And I think really, you know, ultimately you can't teach yoga. And irony, of course, given mm-hmm. the you know, plethora of teacher training programs out there, I mean, you can't teach anybody yoga. You can't put it into words. It's, mm-hmm. it's an experience that defies language. It's really the unspeakable. So then the closest we can get is, is the poetic imagination and, and analogy or metaphor, like, you know, feeling the back of your skull, you know, spread like a cumulus cloud rising, or, you know, feeling your tongue drop like a wet leaf or something like this. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, it's like just image and just the sort of naturalistic metaphor, I think can kind of guide people towards the non 
literal imagination or the metaphoric or the symbolic imagination. And that, I think, kind of brings us into the mythological mm. experience of yoga, you know, the dream, the dreamscape. I'm very into dreams. And so, you know, that dreamscape, one can really time travel. And we live in a world where we have our screens and there's all kinds of boxes and buttons. And so to get outside of the of the world of boxes and and buttons, it's really valuable, I think, to have language that's very spacious and metaphorical mm. and, po- and poetic. It is such a gift of yours. It's really phenomenal. I just did a weekend with you at Love Story in San Francisco a few months ago. And that weekend you talked about, you were talking about the lymph system and how you know, if you imagine like a bog, the limb system as a bog just under your skin. And I love that because you think of a bog and it's moist and hydrated and it's also kind of murky, you know, which the limb system, you know, you're moving a lot of waste. And so I just, yeah, it's, it's really, really a unique skill that you have. It's, it's really mm-hmm. lovely. Yeah. Yeah. I think the further on I go as a yogi and keep practicing and really deepening my meditation, it's, you know, you get into more spaciousness or hopefully one feels more lightness and space and levity. And with that, you know, comes just sort of, you know, you don't quite take things literally. So like when my 13 year old has a conniption fit and falls on the floor, <laughs> you know, the living room, I don't take it literally. That's you know, good. Everything is, you know, as they say in the Buddhist tradition, is is like a phantom. Everything is kind of dreamlike. And so I think that helps us with non-grasping, or it helps me with not, not grasping onto anything. And particularly, this is my own viewpoint around yoga or what I think is right in the yoga tradition or what should be. The, the more I go on, the more everything starts to loosen. And that's really um, been freeing for me. So I, I try to craft language that will guide others towards that spaciousness oh i love that and i just uh, my daughter just had a little conniption this morning before school she just refused to brush her teeth and i actually struggle with being an incredibly linear and incredibly literal person and she is the most magical little being she's the most non-linear little fairy-like human who has she's always in a dreamlike state and most of the time I can, I love that and I can appreciate it. But when it comes down to the practical things, we are like, we butt heads. And so for you to say that really helps me. I have to just think of, because it's not about the not brushing her teeth for her. It's about something else. It's not literally about not brushing her teeth. It's about her being in another world or, you know, I don't know, her dad going away tomorrow or whatever it is about. So that's a really, I like that. I will, I'll take that with me. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the mythology of the yoga tradition or just the, many of the stories, the narratives, are, they're just full of, you know, of alligators and mm-hmm. flying, flying dragons and, you know, multi-headed creatures. And, and it's very dreamlike. And so I think like the imagination of the child, you know, that we're all trying to return to, we're all trying to recaptivate that spacious openness of the child mind heart that um you know the tradition our tradition's full of that and and so you know the overemphasis on posture in some ways kind of sells the 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 tradition short because through yoga i think 
what's called the Sambhogakaya in the Buddhist tradition, it connects us to a landscape that's that's very well dreamlike or childlike and where anything can can come about. And so it's a bit like the artist's imagination. And so I always try to tap that. And that I think can be very freeing because it's easy for us to get caught up in the world of form and, you mm-hmm. know, scheduling and, you know, due dates and projects. And, um, and while we need to live in that world, there's another world that it's also uh, where, where one can time travel. And, and that's powerful to experience that. Totally. It's really true. I just remembered earlier when you were talking about the alligators and that you said something, this is the other thing I think that is so, I'm sure you've gotten this feedback before, but that's so valuable about your gift of language is that it stays with people. Like you have these images and then they stay. And so I have one from 16 years ago that I'm going to ask you about, (laughs) which, so I, I, it's funny because I think I know what, it was about, but I more remember the image because it was so funny. You were talking about how you wished you had a tail. We were talking about the spine. We were talking about the tailbone and you were like, sometimes I wish I had a tail. Is that yeah. do, you re- <laughs> do you remember this? Is this something that comes up often in your teaching? <laughs> All these years later, I get to ask you about it. Right, right. Well, yeah, I still wish I had a tail. I mean, that would be, <laughs> you know, would make balance a lot easier, you know. Right. Us humans with stubby tails, you know, we're, we're so wobbly and we would be tilted and fall over all too easily. So, you know, if we had a, you know, a tail for, um, for greater, you know, uh, alignment, like a, like a canoe has a keel or a rudder, that would really help. So, yeah, I mean, um, also, you know, that's so much about, I think, opening and lengthening and widening the muladhara, the, the pelvic basin and the mm. coccyx and the sacrum. And yeah, um, I think uh, that kind of image, like in a, you know, a, a back bend, if you had a really long tail, it could draw away in, then your spine could, you know, unfurl. And really oh, yeah. Mm. Yes. My memory was that it was balanced. I didn't remember the steering part, but now that you say that, I yeah. And I hadn't thought about the back bends. I love that. I love it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to focus our conversation a little bit more. We're going to talk about perfectionism today. And you have a beautiful talk on this topic, and I will link to it on the show notes page. And, you know, you start the talk... I mean, so much of what you say, say, and it really, really resonates with me. I feel like I'm definitely, I'm a consistently recovering perfectionist. It's just there. And I think there are, you know, you make the point that there are great aspects to being a perfectionist, but of course there's, there are shadow sides too. And so initially you make the point that often people who are drawn to yoga and really devoted and dedicated to our logging hours on the mat and fine tuning your, yourself and, and your mental ruminations might have a propensity for perfectionism. And I'm wondering if this at any point, if you notice this manifesting in your own yoga practice. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've also, you know, growing, growing up had this real impulse to try to, you know, um, be as best as I could be and get things right. And I can remember, you know, just being kind of hyper about, you know, my desk and cleanliness. And, hmm. and so, you know, maybe each of us at some point maybe has this phase 
where we we have a bit of a perfectionist disorder. I don't know if that shows up in the DSM, whether that, that it is a disorder, but it can it can really gnaw away, you know, at our own capacity to be able to flow or to be able to be in the flux. And and life is always so, you know, it's always so full of flux. Everything fluxes by the analogy of the river being a paramount in that, you know, that that um that life is like a river and and so some of the perfectionism, of course, gets gets caught up around control. So the yogi you know, might think, oh, so I control my body in a handstand, or I control my breath in pranayama, or I control my mind in vipassana, control, control. And so mm-hmm. then there's this idea of mastery, and that's what yoga is about. But I, I really feel like that in itself is a cul-de-sac, and I've been caught in that cul-de-sac myself for many years. And and then I realize, oh, wait a minute, you know, it's it's not possible at all to to really control our reality in any great sense. So so then it's the spirit of letting go is so critical. And I think I think so much of yoga is about preparing to let go. I mean partly my father passed away um just last month mm-hmm. and it was with him when he took his last breath. And and I think you know yoga in a sense is is all about letting go and pre- preparing to let go and can we let go before um the final letting go. And so with a kind of perfectionism, there's a kind of proclivity like sort of assume, uh, be under this as false assumption that I can um, be the, the master of my universe. And, and so we, when we see images of the Buddha sitting silently with his long earlobes and, you know, his drishti, his gaze inward, we think, oh, that's like perfectionism. But really, that's just sort of allowing, you know, everything to be as it is. And, and so, um, yeah, it can be corrosive, this, this uh, impulse to um, to want to micromanage everything. And not only that, it's exhausting. Totally. You know, micromanage our world. For me, it creates so much inner turmoil when I'm really stuck in that control place. Like when I really want, when I notice the inner narrative of like, if I do X, Y, and Z, then this will happen today. And then I'll accomplish that. And I can check that off my list. And then I will you know, get that done. And then maybe at four o'clock, I'll have some time for myself to just enjoy myself. <laughs> I mean, it, it just creates so much. It, it takes you so out of appreciating moment to moment life. And when I'm controlling with myself is when I start to get more controlling with others. And that's to me, not fun either. And also not the point of me trying to do this practice, you know? So I really relate to that, what you said about the control um, piece mm. of it. Yeah, Because, you know, I've spent a lot of years actually controlling my body. I mean, doing, you know, handstand in the middle of the room or you're doing, you know, backbend with the leg up. I mean, there's all that, you know, that appearance of kind of mastery that way. And that, that was important to me for a while and then I got to the point where, wait a minute, you know, there's a whole nother realm of practice, mm-hmm. which, it, which kind of involves a loosening of, you know, my own identity and my own, my own impulse to, to grasp, really, uh, even if it's like a beautiful grasping or it, show, it, it results in these beautiful forms or postures. And so uh, this, you know, an antidote to um, perfectionism is um, cele- celebrating things for what they are. 
that's a good 20 year project. It is, but it's, you reframe it so nicely because I feel like, I, I feel like the way you reframe it is different than anything I've heard before. I often think that we think the antidote to perfectionism is to quote unquote, just surrender, which if you're a perfectionist is like the hardest thing to do in the world, but you kind of turn it around and say, well, there's two things that you said that stuck with me. One was, what if you looked at it as a celebration of imperfect? I actually wrote it down because I wanted to get it right. A celebration of imperfection. Mm. And that is such a different way of looking at it. It's like, it's like this beautiful mess kind of perspective, looking at your life as a beautiful mess. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that everyone's life gets messy and that's part of the beauty. And yeah. yeah. And we kind of live in a world that, you know, where there's mess all around. I mean, whether it's politically or ecologically. And so, I mean, there's a point at which, you know, I think um, we recognize, and this is emphasized particularly in the Japanese tradition. And I'm influenced almost as much by the Far Eastern imagination as the yogic one in India is this idea of, you know, that um, in Japan is that it's the imperfect that is the unscheduled, the unplanned, the spontaneous that really is is an expression of freedom. Mm. And so you have like this, you know, like on the temple grounds, Kyoto, you have this manicured raked gravel. And when the, the maple leaf falls over the temple a courtyard wall and lands into the gravel then it's it's this beautiful moment of of things um happening as they are hmm. and so if we get to the point where we allow things to express themselves that's great for us internally too because there's if if we're so caught up in the throttle of perfectionism it's hard for some of the interior feelings to in memories to be um, to surface, mm. you know, especially with the dream work, there's a lot of mess internally. You know, dreams can be very messy, and so, but allowing allowing that to surface is a really important part of the healing journey. So it's chaos. So then it's like, what's what is the good question? Is what's one one's capacity for chaos? And there's order. Yes, we all need a certain amount of order. I'm not saying no order, but but then just being open to, you know, spontaneity and surprise, that brings back to the heart of the child in a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like in the J- Japanese tradition, one more thought on that is like, you know, the bowls they make for tea. You know, if, if there's like a perfect bowl that's like made, that's factory made and it's like completely symmetrical, it's actually imperfect. Hmm. But if there's a bull that's wabi-sabi and it has these kind of, you know, strange, you know, bumps and indentations and is asymmetrical, asymmetrical, that really expresses spirit. And so, you know, we live in this whole society where people try to get everything right and make everything fit. and, And there's not maybe enough, you know, space for letting the you know, the, in, the inconsistencies in and let the inconsistencies be part of, of who we are. And, and I think if we can do that, then there can be a kind of self-love, you know, a kind of mm-hmm. self-acceptance. Otherwise, we get kind of, you know, strangled by trying to be right, you know, trying to get it right. And yeah. So. You know, it's, it's funny, as you say that, the thing that comes to mind for me is that 
the, I think the quality that I'm appreciating the most about social media right now, I definitely feel myself a little bit addicted to my phone. And so in that way, I'm like, oh, there's so many negative things about social media. And there are negative things, but, but one of the positive things in my view is that you do see there, I feel like it's redefining beauty because you do see quote unquote, more normal people. And you, you know, we, we see each other not everything is produced like the way we used to produce photo shoots at yoga journal, quite frankly. And that came from a good place in us. Like we were really trying to get it right. You know, we were really kind of being perfectionists, but I think at a certain point, and I don't think they do this anymore, but I think at a certain point it sucked the life out of things a little bit without us really knowing it. And to me, when you look at social media and you see all different ages and sizes and faces of people doing yoga, it's brought, it's brought the life back for me in that it's, it, I, I see it as a helpful thing. Well, I think, yeah, in that celebration of beauty all around us, you know, that's a really important part of the practice is to keep bringing beauty in to our lives. Uh, um, here in Santa Fe, you know, and we have a retreat center and we're, my wife, Surya, she always has touches of beauty, whether it's the flower arrangement or the, the pathway stones and mm. everything's a little bit asymmetrical, you know, so it, which, which of course is beautiful because the, you know, the slant of the mountain or the, you know, the pitch of the boulder or where the grass is falling, it's, it's not symmetrical. Mm. So there's this thing that yoga people get caught up on is like, oh, you know, should my hips be square? You know, they say in Warrior One, you know. It's like, who wants to be a square? Who wants to be symmetrical? So that kind of dovetails into the importance I've been teaching lately about just how important it is to, for each of us to honor our own signature shape. And, and what I mean by signature shape is we all have asymmetries, you know, uh, like my left foot doesn't, you know, turn out or my right hip doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. turn inward or... Um, my left rib is poked forward. And so the body is asymmetrical, especially given our own personal history. And the more we can appreciate and work within our own asymmetries, our our signature shape, and not try to crank it into this, you know, in our downward dog or tadasana, into this sort of symmetrical thing, um, I think the the, more happy we can be and the more, ultimately, the more... um, uh, healthy in our structure. You have no idea how happy I am that you just said that. I've actually thought about doing a podcast called My Body is Driving Me Crazy because mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that can happen, and I just, I completely went through this, is you, you start doing yoga, you gain all this body awareness, proprioceptive awareness, and then you often will have an injury here, a tweak there, and you and you learn about that. And And then you learn how imperfectly wired together you are. You learn that you're asymmetrical, perhaps for the first time. And I feel like it can be devastating when you first learn that. And you feel like you have to, quote unquote, fix it. You know, like, well, how how am I going to fix this like minor scoliosis that I have? Do I always pull my right hip back? Do I always drop my right hip? Should I do it in my gait? Should I do it in my pose? And after all these years of practice... I've come to sort of what you were talking about, which is just like, I have to embrace what I've got. And that doesn't mean that I can't work with it, but, but embracing it 
and also knowing that everyone else has it too, instead of striving to change it and striving to getting caught in that striving is huge. I think that's so huge. I love, I love how you said that. Yeah. yeah. Honor your signature shape. Is that how you said it? Yeah. Honor, honor your oh, signature. Our narrative, our own personal narrative is also in our tissues. And so, you know, like I was a soccer player for many years. And so I have, you know, the map of, you know, soccer in my fascia, or maybe other people, they were golfers or they were gardeners or they carried babies or, they, you know, just mm-hmm. they've lived a life. And then there's all that signature imprint. And so it's not we're trying to like erase or somehow like cleanse of it. It's like, how can we embrace our own personal narrative which is everyone is unique you know Mm -hmm. going back to what you're saying about the beauty of social media and everybody being different is that you know we embrace our own difference which includes our own shortcomings our own you know tightness tight areas or our own traumas in, in our personal history and that is our personal narrative and then the more we can accept in a radical, you know, like the Buddhist Zen, Zen tradition calls a radical acceptance. Mm-hmm. The more we accept all of that, I think the closer we are to, you know, the whole idea of liberate, you know, f- being free and being really open hearted. That's yeah. why we're constantly need, needing to change it, make it better, make it different, make it more enlightened, more spiritual, more balanced, more symmetrical. All of that agenda at some point starts to strangulate. And loosening that agenda is, yeah, it's what I try to coach, you know, my students in as as, as much as I can. Yeah. thing um, that I wanted to, that I remembered from your talk that I want to say, you know, say out loud, which is that perfectionism, and I'll just use yoga asana as an example, can come up in any form. But when you're sort of striving for something to be perfect, let's say your triangle pose, it creates a feeling of incompleteness, or I'm not there yet, I'm not there yet. And you talked about how what if you look at life as, and I'm not saying this exactly right, but sort of like that it's just a dance of incompleteness. And you talked earlier about this letting go is really a preparation for the final letting go. And I see that so much, you know, I I was diagnosed with cancer a few years ago and completely shifted everything in so many positive directions. But one thing that I have noticed that it does is it makes me feel like, okay, what do I got to get done before I, before I'm gone from this earth? It's this funny drive that I have noticed comes up. What do I need to accomplish? What do I need to impart to my daughter? What do I need to, where do I need to travel to? Blah, 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 blah. And it's like, I have to accept the fact that everyone is going to die feeling, you know, in some area, a little incomplete. It's not like there isn't like a neat tidy package and you press the button and go, okay, it's my turn. I'm going to go now. I'm ready. (laughs) So (laughs) I found that really helpful. That's right. Well, like in the Buddhist tradition, you know, there's the, the Heart Sutra. It's 
the, the phrase, there's no attainment. And, and so that's, that's really important, I think, for Western mind, because, you know, we're always thinking, you know, well, yoga is all about attainment. At some mm-hmm. point, I'm going to attain, I'm going to attain some state. And so the idea of things, in a sense, always in this process of, of evolution, and, and um, that is, um, things are always incomplete. And we participate, you know, we dance, we dance the incompleteness, or we sing the in the incomplete, and, and we eat, you know, we celebrate in the in, incompleteness. And, and I think that's where real joy lies. So in that sense, there is, there is no attain, you know, really attainment. But I think that's, that's hard, because if you know, been, you know, went to law school or med school, or, you know, you were, you know, have been striving for 9.9 score from the, from the judge, in your figure skating career or whatever you've, you've been doing, then you're, you're like, well, it's all about attainment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in Chinese, it's called wu wei, you know, we're not getting or not doing. So then that's when the allowing, possibly allowing can come in, which I think we all need to sort of tenderize our heart uh, more, more about allowing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious <clears throat> for people who are listening who might feel like, their world is being turned upside down right now. <laughs> their yoga asana is being turned upside down. You know, what do you suggest as a mental approach for being a yogi who does asana and is working on poses and is really excited about that? How do you balance that desire with a certain amount of letting go so that you can actually enjoy the process? It's not one or the other, right? We don't people don't have to worry that they have to give up all goals. Yeah, all striving. Yeah, right. I think, you know, go ahead and keep, you know, s- striving away. And, and I, you know, I, I also, you know, really be diligent and persevere and, and push myself in, in poses and, uh, at a, on occasion. Um, but at some point, I think uh, for all uh, those really, you know, interested in evolving on this path, they have to look directly at their own striver what I call working with a pusher. And so when we start looking at our own pusher side, our own striver, you know, that's really where some deep, deeper work surfaces. Like what, what's my motivation here? What, what's really, what is, what's driving me? And, mm. and oftentimes underneath that, well, it's either I want to be accepted. I want to be, um, I want to be approved. I want to be successful or I want to uh, avoid failing and, you know, being the stiffest one in class and so then there's that identity, identity pattern underlying the execution of the pose, like what's really motivating me. So when we start looking at that, like the, the striver or, or, um, or the fear of, you know, of, of success and, the, you know, feeling like always the failure, you know, that we, we look at that and uh, that's a Vipassana. That's starting to really see directly into this is what I call the subtle body or the mind, you know, the, how the mind uh, imprint informs how we are in the world. And so, you know, because a lot of us, we just kind of map our Judeo-Christian drive, you know, either as athletes or, or students or business world, we just map that onto yoga hmm. and say, okay, so push my way. But yoga doesn't, that, that doesn't work. You can't just go for the gold star in yoga. That, there's, there's a whole nether level of the practice that actually requires, you know, looking directly at the, the striver. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I don't think I've even done, oh my goodness, one uh, podcast devoted solely to meditation, but although it's always, but it's always on my mind, but it sounds to me like that practice is, is just so hugely complementary to understanding all of these concepts. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then, then it's not like a physical striving then, you know, so it starts with a physical, you know, it starts with a gross and then, and then at some point one kind of starts to use that word again, striving or one really, you know, is diligent and in looking into, you know, like looking into what is called in Zen, turning the lantern of awareness back inside and like turning that a lantern on what's, you know, what's motivating me and what's my agenda and how am I feeling about myself? when I'm doing this and mm-hmm. what are my hopes and what are my fears? And so when we start looking at that level, then we can really start seeing, Oh my gosh, I've been, I've been in the world this way ever since I was, you know, in, in fifth grade, I've been trying to prove myself. I've been mm-hmm. trying to, you know, be the best or I've been feeling like a failure or I'm going to be the last one picked on the team. And so whatever it is. So, so then there's that we start gaining insight into our deeper cellular imprint of who we have become or that part of our narrative. And um, boy, that's when our yoga kind of really starts to, you know, deepen. And, you know, that takes, yeah, some meditation for sure. Reflection, contemplation, reflection, silence, breathing, and then noting, you know, what's, what am I onto here? What's, what's impelling me forward? in my practice. Yeah. And meditation, meditating, I know there's so many apps out there and there's nothing, I don't think that's a bad thing, but there's nothing like meditating in a group to help you feel that you're not alone in all of your craziness. (laughs) You know, I know you have a retreat center. Do you host regular yoga and meditation retreats together? Do you teach the meditation or how does that work? Yeah, once or twice a year, we do silent retreats on our, on our, in our facility, 15 minutes outside of Santa Fe. And that includes, you know, asana and the um, satya work uh, that I do, the um, therapeutic kind of yin style practice on the floor. And then we do silent, you know, silent practice, you know, walking and sitting. But all of my classes, you know, I would say every class I do, it involves some um, meditation component or or, you know, period of reflection. And that's so valuable. Hopefully people become more reflective in their practice. You know, they become more re- reflective beings, uh, contemplative. Yeah, I've always really very much supportive of the contemplative side of yoga. It's so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. It's really, it's, for me, it's, it's been the game changer. It's the thing that's really changed my life the most, which is why I appreciate you so much. And when you talking about your retreat center, it makes me miss Sarah Powers even more because she used to do those at the, at the Zendo in Marin and she's, she's not there anymore. But I want to just ask one more question on this topic. And that is, you know, thinking about an application of this, this approach to our life. And I'm thinking about it specifically in parenting and I'm wondering if you have any any thoughts on how you've conveyed this teaching to your son. You know, you said he's 13. 
And, you know, there's just a part of parenting that is about, you know, encouraging your children to engage. And of course it depends on the child. Some children are like really intrinsically motivated, but I think most parents from time to time have to like use a stick a little bit with their children to get them to, to engage and do their best and really try. And I'm wondering if you've thought about how you balance that with allowing him to just be. Well, yeah, we have a 13-year-old boy, my wife, Sari, and I. And, uh, and just a couple of weeks ago, I finally got him to sit. So I said, okay, just sit for five minutes, you know, mm-hmm. and in silence and, you know, count, count your breath up to 10 and then start again. So he sat for five minutes and he comes out of his room and he looks at me and he says, that's the biggest waste of time I ever did in the whole world. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh that's perfect. You know, it's like, it was classic. And it's yeah. like, you know, it, it is important that we, we waste time. It is important that we go into a place of timelessness or at some point just kind of touch into that no time. And so how do I parent? Well, that didn't quite work. So um, <laughs> I definitely do the Tai Chi approach. Um, you know, there's a lot of give and take and, and I'm a water sign and I'm, I'm very fluid in the way, you know, I move through the world generally. And so as a parent, you know, I, I'm always realizing, you know, that here's this young identity that's so, 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 so fragile. I mean, it's just like this, you know, the, it's just gel-like gelatinous um, core this ego structure that's not uh, fully formed. And, and so the last thing I'm going to do is going to like smash it or like pull it in this direction and fix it there. And so I'm always just mindful of how fr- um, fragile the, the ego is for all of us, even as adults and tender. And so, you know, my approach is really through loving awareness. And, and for the most part that works. I, I also am very um, manual. So I, you know, I, I, of course, do a lot of hands-on work in the yoga room because I'm trained with my hands. But, you know, I, t- I touch him a lot and there's a lot of healing. There's a lot of transmission, father-son, you know, mm-hmm. that happens through touch. And, and so there's a lot of loving presence that comes through that way. And a lot of it's my tone of my voice. You know, sometimes I just try to pet him with my voice when he starts to have a meltdown. And, and sometimes it works. And a lot of times it doesn't. And so that's... <laughs> That's just being in the, you know, that's just being in the ongoing um, incompleteness of life, and and that's okay too. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Mm. <laughs> we are, yeah. Jason and I, our daughter's five, and we already get questions. You know, how do you kind of like what I just did to you? How do you? You're this yoga family. How do you do it? How do you convey it? And I'm like. I do my best and I just cross my fingers that it's some of it's getting through in some way, you know, and, and like try to model open awareness and try to model really listening. And one thing I have to work on is the modeling of the not reacting emotionally immediately when something happens. Uh, Jason and I have both noticed her picking up some of our, just like, I mean, this is just silliness, but you know, she gets frustrating, frustrated with something she's trying to do. Like, let's just say open a marker cap or something. She'll just go and throw it across the room. We both look at each other like, Hmm, mental note. Let's not, you know, get so frustrated so quickly by like simple everyday, everyday things. Yeah. 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 The world never really works quite the way we want it to. That, that agenda to try to get the world to work the, the way we want it to, that, 
that's operative in so many of us. And, and uh, at some point, I mean, as a parent and just in our own lives, we see, well, okay, look, oh, geez, suddenly I, see, I can see my own agenda here. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, not to say that you don't, you know, prevent your kid from, you know, sticking the crayon in her mouth or dumping the cereal box in the whole foods aisle, you know, on the mm-hmm. floor, you know, but, but you, what do you feel like, well, gee, you know, it's all, I, it's kind of my, uh, the way I'm perceiving the world now. So I can think of Zen, it's called taking the backward step. So mm. we take a backward step um, behind the, our agendas. And yeah, the more I can take the backward step and kind of loosen my own agenda, the more something else can come through, something greater than myself, something inscrutable, but also really powerful can come through. And if we're so you know caught up in agenda making, it's sometimes it's hard for that that mm-hmm. other force to come through. Yeah. No, it's so tr- it's really true. It's really true. And I and it's true when you when you let something spontaneously come through there there's usually so much more joy in it, you know, than like you said just trying to control everything. Well, thank you so much, Tias. It's just so mm. wonderful to talk to you and to keep learning from you. I, I appreciate you so much. Mm, you're welcome, Angela. Thanks for having me. It's been a joy to, to share with you. Thanks. Thanks, as always, for listening. I will put links to Tias and Surya's website and to Tias's books on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 102. And if you're enjoying the podcast, it's super helpful to us if you could leave a review on iTunes or a five-star rating, or just share it with someone who you think could use a little insight and inspiration. You can also keep up with us uh, by subscribing to our newsletter. We send it out about twice a month, sometimes less. And we just include all of Jason's dates where he's teaching. I get those questions a lot. If you want to know those things and if you want to know when we're releasing new content, you can sign up for our newsletter by going to jasonyoga.com and you'll find a sign up slot on the homepage. Okay, until next week, enjoy your practice. Enjoy your practice.